0: The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Out of the depths, I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For there is faithful love with the Lord. And with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. Um, yeah, how happy are all of those that put their trust in your word. So I pray that um, as we hear from you today, that we would be those whose uh, m- misery um, is turned into joy, Father. Would you help us uh, to do nothing else but to wait on you, Father, to hold on to the promises of that are in your word. We are grateful. We love you. Speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take a seat. Um, I don't know all of you here in this room, uh, but I do know two things to be true about all of you here in this room. Here's the first thing that I know about us. Uh, the first thing that I know is that... Uh, Everybody wants to be happy. You want to be happy. Happiness is made up of at least two things, I think. Um, The circumstances that you have and the choices that you make with those things. So it's helpful to think about life like a restaurant. You go out to eat. A menu is presented for you. Those are the circumstances that you have with your life. You cannot make a restaurant change what it offers, it offers what it does. The life that you have, the lot that you have, is the lot that you have. However, happiness at a restaurant has more to do with just what they cook, more to do with than what they cook. But it has to do with what you consume. can make the right choice, and leave with a smile on your face, or you can make the wrong choice and be frustrated. We want to be happy, and our happiness often is based on our choices. That's the first thing that I know about us. Here's the next thing that I know about you. Even though everybody wants to be happy, nobody's perfect. And because none of us are perfect, what that means is that every one of us, all of us, are going to make the wrong choices in regards to our happiness. And because we're not perfect, even when we're corrected and told the right things that we should do, we're going to make the wrong choice again. And because we're not perfect, what we tend to do is instead of listening to God's words and instructions about how we can get out of our mess, what we tend to do is try to dig ourselves out of our mess. And the more that we dig, the deeper the hole gets, and we find out that we bury ourselves in our own misery. Sometimes we're depressed because of the things that take place to us. The loss of a child loss of a job, dreams that fade, nightmares that materialize. But there's a lot of times where we find ourselves depressed, not because of anything that was done to us, but because of something that we've done to ourselves. We find out that we can't blame anybody else. We find out that we don't just need one more chance because With the one more chance that we were given, we've failed. Our imperfections have sabotaged our pursuit of happiness, and we find that sin has just compounded itself. If that's you, I want you to know that Psalm 130 is good news for you. If you're here and you say, well, that's not me, Uh, Let me add in one more word. Uh, That may not be you yet, but if you're imperfect, eventually you will find yourself here. Even if it's not you now, I guarantee that you know somebody that this is them right now. I had a prof in school that used to say, education is a time bomb set to go off at a later date. So even if this is not you yet... These are good truths for you to hold on to. If you feel like you're too far gone or you have self sabotaged yourself, I want you to know that your story is not finished. You don't have to suffer in silence, you don't have to pretend that you're okay. You just have to sit and listen to the good news that God gives us in His Word, God's greatest treasures are often buried in our deepest sorrows. Psalm 130 is part of what's called the Psalms of Ascent, and what scholars have believed is that Jews on their way to the temple Levites on their way to worship, or even the exiled Jews that were on their way back, that this was kind of their soundtrack. They put this in their iPod, and as they were getting ready to go from their low place up to the high place to reflect on God, this was the soundtrack to get them at for what it is that they were preparing to do. And I think that this gives us at least um, four steps for us to get out of our misery. And for those of y'all that are going to take notes, Just got four things, and the four things are this. Cry, fear. I heard a bunch of pens clicking, so that's good. Cry, fear, hold on, and shout. Cry, fear, hold on, shout. We'll start with cry in verse 1 and verse 2. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. I love the way that this psalm starts because in these first two verses, what we see is a guy that owns the situation that he's in. Out of the depths I call To you, Lord, he is at rock bottom. It seems like he is aware that there is nothing that he can do. And the reason why I say he's aware that there's nothing that he can do is because he owns the situation that he's in. He is in the depths. He's not trying to pretend that he's not there, but he also owns the solution. And the only solution that he has is out of the depths, Lord, I'm going to cry. And I'm going to cry and pray that you listen to my cry. This is not some guy that is driving a car, makes the wrong turn, gets caught in traffic and thinks, I'm just going to put it in reverse and go a new route. This is somebody that's driven his car off of a cliff and can't move. Out of the depths, I call to you, Lord. I cry. This is... This is how you know that you've really reached rock bottom. When one, there's nobody else for you to blame. And two, you're not just asking for one more chance. You're asking for a savior. This is what the scripture means when it says that you and I are to come to God like children, right? Don't think of kids, you know, like your four-year-old who comes to you in the morning and says, Mom and Dad, I want breakfast. And you say, you know where the breakfast bars are, right? Go and get it yourself. Think of it like an infant who has no other tools in their belt, who can't just get up and make themselves a sandwich, but cries because they know that if Mom and Dad do not come and put this pacifier in my mouth, I will die. Out of the depths I cry. I really wanted to bring this point up just so that you all can see this. Look, God is used to hearing people cry for help. Psalm 130, this right here, This is God leaving his porch light on to let you know it's okay to come up. God doesn't treat us like we treat our friends. We all have those friends that they really don't call us unless they need something. And when we get that call for them, we know that they need something. And so we screen their calls. God is not out here screening calls. His porch light is on. He's inviting us to come up. Every prayer starts with first words. Maybe you're in here and you felt like, man, I haven't prayed to God in a long time, so I don't just want to come to him when I need something. God is used to hearing cries for help. Every prayer starts off with first words. It doesn't matter how long it's been since your last words to God. Don't wait in getting these first ones off to him quick. Be honest with where you are. You don't have to hide from him. He knows and he sees all. And be heard. Open your mouth and cry out to him. Let the depths of your sorrow lead you to cry out to the Lord for help from the bottom of your heart. God is used to hearing from people that are in desperate circumstances. But with that being said, um. Just because prayer can start here, uh, a strong prayer life often doesn't grow here. So just because God is used to hearing from people that are at their rock bottom, please do not waste your prosperity. If things are good right now, take advantage of that and pray with your spouse. Pray with your kids. Pray with your roommates. Pray with your friends. Life's fires aren't the only things that are meant to warm our hearts to God. Don't waste your prosperity. He starts here inviting us to cry. But what we see is that this next step that we see in verse 3 and 4 is not a step up. It's a step down. Because we all know that a cry for help, a plea for help, um, is really only as good as your credit. Um, seven years ago, my wife and I were trying to buy our first home, and as we were trying to buy our first home, uh, what we found out uh, is that uh, before Wells Fargo loans you money, uh, they really get into your personal life, right? Because uh, they want to make sure that if they're going to come alongside and help you, that you're somebody that's trustworthy. That's why I say that this cry to help for a God That may be the first step, but step two is not a step up, but it's a step down. Look here at verse three and four as we talk through fear. Verse three says this, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. After this cry for help, He's hit with this fact that we all are hit with. I'm actually not deserving of the help that I desperately need. Right, it starts right here. He says, if you kept an account of iniquity. It's not a hypothetical. God does. You and I forget things. Our brains are set up. So that we forget inconsequential things, things that we don't need so that we can store important information. So the Spanish that you took in school for four years, it's gone. (laughs) Calculus, it's gone, right? Phone numbers, all of that stuff is gone so that we can take in more and more information. Some of the sins are the things that we've done in our past. There's some things that we can't forget, but there's some things that we have, and they're just gone. Look, God is not like that. God is not trying to watch his caffeine intake to make sure that his brain stays sharp. God is not sitting on his throne on his off days playing sudoku to make sure that his mind stays sharp and he doesn't forget anything. God does not forget. He is a meticulous accountant, and he has a ledger, a detailed one, of every way that we've failed him. Who could stand? Nobody. This is is what makes it so hard for him because he's, he's saying, Lord, I don't need another chance. I need somebody to save me. And now what I've seen is that my biggest fear is not just that I would be in trouble. My biggest fear is that I wouldn't have somebody to save me from my biggest fear. And what he finds out with this great God is the same thing that all of us find out. Is that the help that we're so desperately in need of, we do not deserve. It would be like you spending a lifetime cheating on your taxes, finding out that your home was being foreclosed and being told that the only place that you could go to get a loan is the IRS. I can go and ask for help, but the very person, the very people that I ask for help are those that I've stolen from and racked up this big debt So as soon as they start to pry into the reason why I'm asking for their help, I shouldn't get help. I should get judgment. But here's what I love about verse 4. It doesn't stop there. There's this but, one of the most important words in your Bible, this contrast, but with you, right? There's justice with God. We know that God is a just judge, but God is not just a judge. But with you, look, there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I think the main point that this psalm is going to lay out Is this, is that it is the rope of God's mercy that lifts you and I out of our misery? It is the rope of God's mercy that lifts us out of our misery. As he reflects on this great God, I'm sure judgment is there in the back of his mind, but he is reminded that there is good news with this God, that there is forgiveness. And he says that with you there is forgiveness because the only person that can forgive an offense is the person that was offended. You can't do me wrong and ask my wife for forgiveness. She can say she forgives you all day, but forgiveness has to come from the person that was offended. And the Bible is clear, y'all, that all of our sins, all of our missteps, all of our outrages, all of our outbursts of anger, all of our stealing, all of our lustful thoughts, all of those are not primarily done to people. They are done against a holy and a perfect God. So when he sits here and he talks about that with God there is forgiveness, we live in a world where everybody wants to talk about God's love, and of course God is a forgiving God, but if you ever sat back and asked yourself, what reason does God have to forgive me of my sin?" And regardless of if you're a Christian or not, these subtle things tend to creep in. Maybe you think that your resolve is the reason that God should forgive you of your sin. I won't do it again. But you did it again. So we see that our resolve is worthless. Maybe maybe you think that God should forgive you of your sin because it was an accident. Oftentimes when we say things were an accident and that we didn't mean to do it, I think what we really mean is, well, I did mean to do it. I just didn't think it would leave me as empty after I did it. Maybe you think that the reason that God should forgive you of your sin is because of the circumstances that you were put in. You were just put in a lose-lose. But I want you to hear this. Circumstances do not cause sin. Circumstances give shape to our sin. People in desperate circumstances may blame God and turn their back on him, but people that find themselves in delightful circumstances turn their backs on God as well and praise themselves. Maybe you think that God should forgive me of my sins because God is lonely, right? My wife hates flying. Um, So one of the things that I learned very early on in our marriage Uh, that I try not to use, but I still use uh, against her, um, is I know that my margin for error and offense with my wife uh, is greater at times surrounding flights that we have to take. She's more prone to forgive me if we're getting ready to get on a plane because when we get on a plane, she's going to want to grab my arm and for me to tell her that it's okay. God's not like that. God's not scared of anything. When we go through this list, we quickly find out that there's nothing that we bring. There's nothing that we offer. But the good news of the gospel is that the fact that we don't deserve forgiveness doesn't remove the fact that forgiveness is there. That once we go down that list and see that there's no reason that God has to forgive us for our sin, we find out that There must be some reason outside of myself that God has forgiven me of my sin. And that's what turns our attention. That's what changes us from trying to work for the forgiveness of God to accepting it. He goes on and he says this, but with you there is forgiveness. And then this word right here, so that you may be feared or you may be revered. Here's what that does. Sometimes when we owe somebody this great debt, we fear them because they're going to come to collect on that debt. In every other relationship that we have, once that debt is paid, our fear for that person or that reverence vanishes. Um, starting in 2002, um, I got into a relationship with this woman, um, and I racked up this big debt that I owed her through our marriage. Um, In 2006, uh, somebody came and they paid off this huge debt that I owed her. And in 2006, um, my relationship with Sally Mae ended. (laughs) I, I, I didn't fear her anymore. I didn't duck her calls. Me and her don't talk. The paying of the debt was the ending of the relationship. That is not true with God. The paying of our sin debt in Jesus does not end the relationship that we have with God. It begins it. It starts it. So when we see this full and free forgiveness that's found in Jesus, that endears our heart to God. This debt has been paid, now that's been removed, and you and I can enjoy him. So we start off crying to God, we see this fear that I have something that I should be afraid of, but then realizing that this full and free forgiveness is found in Christ, I live in light of the fact that now I have nothing to be afraid of. That all I have to face with God, all that He does towards me is out of His goodness and His love and His kindness. And so here's where verse 5 and 6 come in that we don't work, we hold on. Look here at verse 5 I will wait for the Lord. I wait and I put my hope in His word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Yay, more than watchmen for the morning. You see right there that word that's repeated three times. It's not work, it's waiting. But this waiting is not a passive waiting. It's a very active waiting. Look right there at verse 5. I will wait for the Lord. I will wait. And this verb, this active verb, I will put my hope in his word. Not in my work, not in my resolve, not in my ability to fix this mess. I will put my hope in his word. The revelation of himself that he's revealed. So many scriptures would speak to this, but I think this one speaks the best. Exodus 34, this is God's word about himself, the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. The word that we put our hope in is that forgiveness with God is not only possible, but it is actually available. And it's not just that this forgiveness is available. It's that this forgiveness is something that he revealed about himself. It is his idea. It's not anything that we have to convince him to do. This is what he wants to do. Genesis 3 in your Bible is not a detour from God's plan. So many of us look at God's word as if Genesis 1 and 2, God wrote that out, turned it in to a publisher, and they send it back, and they say, hey, God, this is great, but we need a little more drama. Can you jazz this thing up a bit? Genesis 3 is not a revision to God's plan. It is a straight line to what God has been trying to do in revealing the type of person that he is or the type of God that he is. This is God. Against the backdrop of our faithlessness, showing just how faithful he is. This is God against the backdrop of our misery that we've caused ourselves, showing just how his mercy can pull us out. And so what he says is, I'm not going to put my faith, my hope, In my ability to work or to get myself out of this, I'm just going to put my hope in God's word. The fact that what he has said about himself is actually true. And so look here at verse 6, how he expounds on how he's going to wait. I will wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. He repeats that twice. His waiting is not just active. Actively putting his hope in the Lord. But his waiting is, is eager. I don't know about you all, but um, I used to have a job where I worked the, the third shift. Um, and when you work that third shift, you wait for the sunrise. And everybody that works the sh- third shift, nobody works it and says, man, I really hope that the sun's going to come out today. Everybody that works it knows the sun is going to come out. And as soon as morning time comes, all the work that I've put in, I can cease and rest and go to sleep. And what he's saying is I'm going to wait for the faithfulness of God. I'm putting my hope in his word and I'll wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than the folks on the third shift. I know that it's going to come. I'm not going to wait like somebody who has an absentee father that wonders if today is going to be the day that my dad comes and picks me up. I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to wait and put my hope in the Lord and know that his word is true. And the way that I'm actively going to put my hope in his word is I'm going to memorize it. Church, when was the last time that you said, I've struggled so much to put my hope in the word that I just want to make sure that I put the word in myself. To where when you find yourself self-sabotaging, when you find yourself making the wrong choices, you can be reminded from Romans 6, what should we say then? Should we sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Listen, therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Therefore, if we have been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And you remind yourself of what's true about God and what's true about you based on what God has done in Christ Jesus. And you hold on to God's Mercy. Eagerly. This is the good news that I have for you today. This is God's idea. It is God's invitation. And I just want to remind you, church, God's people have always been awaiting people. This is, this is what we do. Adam and Eve had a promise that God was going to send a seed into the world that was going to undo what they did. And do you know what they had to do? They had to wait. Abraham had a promise from God that he would have a son. And do you know what he did? He waited. Joseph had a dream that God was going to put him in a place to lead. And do you know what he did? He waited for 13 years. Israel had a promise that this God loved them. And do you know what they did in slavery? They waited for a redeemer. And then after they waited and were set free, do you know what they did? They waited for another 40 years. And they were exiled, and they waited for God to set them free. And then they came back, and they waited for a deliverer to truly set them free. And then Jesus came, and he lived, and people waited for him to do what God said that he would do. And he did it, and he died on the cross. And do you know what the disciples had to do? They had to wait for the third day for him to raise up from the grave with all power. And he did it. But then he left. And do you know what they had to do? Wait for 40 days for the Spirit to come on them. And then the Spirit came on them. And in this age where the Spirit is empowering God's children, we are waiting for Jesus to come back. Christians are waiting people. As you're waiting, we hold on. We hold on to the hope that we find in God's word. We're reminded it's not wishful thinking. It is eager anticipation. And I think if we, if we cry, we cry out to God, and we fear, We're reminded of the huge debt that we owe, but the forgiveness that is provided. And we're hit with this hope and we hold on. The only thing that's left for you and I to do is to shout. Verse 7 says this, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its Iniquity. Verse 7 is a proclamation. Verses 1 through 6 primarily have been about what the psalmist has been dealing with God on a personal level. But then after hearing and embracing this truth, the reflex of a soul that finds forgiveness and mercy in God is to shout is to tell this to somebody else. So what he does is he proclaims it to an entire nation. The platform that he has, he's saying, this is too good for me to keep to myself, and it's too true not to apply to everybody else. And it's a proclamation not just for, not just about what God has done for him, but what God will do for everybody else. Look here at verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. From all of them. God is not going to get to the table at the end of the day. He's not going to get the bill, tap around for his wallet, and realize that he doesn't have the money to pay. When I was in high school, um, I, 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 I went to prom uh, with this girl, and uh, outside of Houston, we went to Papa's restaurant. So as we're sitting there, we're getting ready to go to prom, I tell her, get whatever you want, right? I had a part-time job at Chuck E. Cheese at the time. I saved up, <laughs> saved up my little money, and I told her, get whatever you want. Um, and so she chooses the Salmon. I'll never forget it because she didn't finish it, right? <laughs> and the price, and and the price of it, there was no price. It said market rate. I had no clue what that was. Um, so then we eat. Well, I eat my meal. She half eats hers, um, and they send this bill at the end. And I look at how big this bill is, and I realize um, I actually don't have the money to pay for the bill. But I can't let her know that. We're getting ready to go to prom. So I just give them my card. They swipe it, and the overdraft fees come out later. Uh, But what I found was I made a promise to her that I couldn't deliver on. That at the end of the day, I really didn't pay for the meal. Wells Fargo paid for it, and I had to pay them back. When he makes this promise at the end, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities, this is a God who knows the market price for sin. He knows exactly how much it costs. And it costs more than you can afford. It costs more than all of us could afford. But his perfect son, Jesus, paid the full cost for the world so much that if the whole world would turn from their sin and put their trust in him, this would be fully paid in an abundance With some left over. We may have wrecked things in our lives. Our misery may feel like um, it's an ocean that we are drowning in. And I want you to know, in your own power, in your own strength, you cannot swim to the top. But God's mercy in the person of Jesus is the rope that lifts you and I out of our misery. We cry, be honest, and cry. We fear, but we hold on. And we shout. I've got a few things that I want to leave us here with, and that's this one Um, don't be afraid. Don't think that there's anything that you have to do or perform or change or fix up in order for God to hear your cry for help. We're children, we are His infants. He does not expect us to make a sandwich for ourselves. He expects us to cry. So I would say, cry. Don't be afraid. There's nothing but good news for all those who cry out for help. Don't be afraid to ask for something that it was God's idea to give you in the first place. And don't be afraid to ask for it consistently. Two, give it away. The best way to be reminded of the truth of the free and full forgiveness that we have in Christ is to extend that to others. Here's what I mean by give it away. When you find yourself deeply offended by something that somebody has done, I want you to remember this. An apology is not a prerequisite for an offer of forgiveness. One of the best things that you and I can do is to treat an apology or is to treat forgiveness like the chips and salsa that come at the beginning of a restaurant. You sit down. The chips and salsa are brought. You don't have to ask for it. All that the person has to do is accept it. This is what God had done for us. We didn't ask for God to rectify the problems that we created. He offered it to us freely, which made it so easy for us to, to confess our sins. When you find yourself in contention with somebody else, sometimes the very offer of forgiveness as the first step is the best way for them to embrace it. Reconciliation is so much easier if you make up your mind to offer forgiveness before they make up their mind to ask for your forgiveness. That way you don't hold on to any cup of bitterness. Jesus has already drinking, drank, drunk. I'm not sure which one, but y'all know what I mean. Jesus has already consumed the bitter cup. (laughs) Lastly, I just want us to be reminded that with us there is sin, but with God there's mercy and an abundance of it. There's more mercy in God than there is sin in us. Let's pray. Father, um, as we await the hope of redemption that you've promised for us, Uh, help us to be your agents of that great promise of forgiveness by extending that very forgiveness to people that we may find ourselves in relationship with that offend or that hurt us, Father. I pray that you would make us people that are eager to experience your mercy And in our eagerness, Father, we wouldn't be silent to you or to our brothers and sisters about our misery, Father. Help us to be honest about where we are and help us to be loud in our cries for help, Father. Uh, We ask that you would help us to be those that hold on to the hope that's found in your word, not to our resolve, not to our promises for future obedience, but to your word, the revelation that your son came to take care of our sin, to give us your forgiveness and your love for your glory. We ask that this would be true of us. We ask that this would be true of this church. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.